This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hello, everyone. This is Colonel Matt Martin from Baghdad, Iraq. And hello, this is Jennifer Gurney, also in Baghdad, Iraq. And also a colonel. And also a colonel. <laughs> and we're here to uh, give you guys the introduction to the uh, this episode of Case Records of the Joint Trauma System. This was recorded on August 29th, 2017 at the Military Health, Health Sciences Research Symposium in Florida. Uh, one thing that's unique about this meeting is that there's more than just surgeons at this meeting. There's many people from research and logistics and uh, nursing care who uh, support combat casualty care along the continuum. And before we get started with this uh, podcast, uh, Colonel Martin is going to describe the continuum of care on the battlefield to give everybody an idea of some of the challenges that we have taking care of these patients. Yeah, and so just, just as a primer to the discussion you're about to hear, military we love acronyms we love numbers uh, and just so everybody understands uh, what people are referring to uh, the, the process and continuum of care for an injured service member uh, on the battlefield uh, goes through a system called the echelons or roles of care and so you often hear it referred to as echelon or role and a number uh, role one through role five uh, and that just starts from the point of injury and follows that injured soldier back uh, all the way through their evacuation back to the continental United States. Um, so role one care would be uh, immediately at the point of injury, typically, typically done by uh, other soldiers or medics. Uh, would also include uh, forward care by a medical treatment facility that does not have surgical capabilities. So this would be called a battalion aid station or a Charlie Med. Um, they would then proceed to a roll two. And roll two facility is really the first point where there is a surgical capability. Uh, and you'll often hear uh, FST uh, or forward surgical team, and, and that's, at least for the Army, the typical roll two unit. And that's a small 10 to 20 person element uh, that can perform basic damage control surgery uh, as close to the point of injury as possible. Uh, from there, the injured service member will usually progress to roll three facility. Uh, you'll often heard that called a cash or a combat support hospital, and that is more of a robust full hospital. It has surgical capability, it has CAT scan imaging, it has subspecialty uh, availability, it has uh, pretty robust patient holding and intensive caring capability. And for, for anybody who used to watch the show MASH, uh, it, it's similar to a MASH. In fact, the MASH has evolved now into caches. Uh, and the other services have uh, somewhat different names, but the role three generally means a more robust facility. And I think, you know, one thing to understand as you listen to uh, the next case is that the role two capability can be really quite austere. You certainly don't have a CAT scanner. Uh, you might not even have x-ray. Usually you'll have ultrasound. These teams uh, can be anywhere from six to 20 people. They seem to be getting smaller and smaller, but they're really resource limited and so the decisions that are made are not really the same types of decisions that you would make in the States. 
And then just to finish it out, uh, from there, the patients will typically be evacuated out of theater unless their injuries are so minor that they can return to duty. They will be evacuated to a Roll 4 facility, which is, again, a fully staffed and resourced hospital that is outside the continental U.S. Uh, and for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, that's been at Landstuhl Regional Medical Center in Germany. Uh, and, and then from the Roll 4, they'll be evacuated to a Roll 5, which means a facility uh, back in the United States, typically one of the major military medical centers. Super great. Thanks so much, Matt. So that was your uh, quick primer on the roles of care on the battlefield. We thanks everybody to tuning in to case records of the joint trauma system so that lessons learned are not forgotten. All right, so Dr. Um, Avi Yitzhak had to return to Israel, so we have four panel members. Uh, this is a similarly complicated case. We have Dr. John O. from Hershey, Pennsylvania, Dr. Stacy Shackelford from San Antonio, Texas, Dr. Craig Sheps from Portsmouth, and Dr. Don Jenkins from San Antonio. Again, all multiply deployed, all experts. Uh, feel free to heckle them like you did the last group. Okay, so you guys ready? I, I just, uh, at a roll two after just having other people take care of that patient, I'm going to request a nap before the next patient arrives. <laughs> yeah. And he wants a nap. And being denied, now we're denied. ready. Denied. Nap is denied. Okay, so you are, um, uh, okay, so you're at the Fob Shank. Yeah. Okay, let's see. I'm sorry some of that did not project. Um, Okay, so you're at uh, Afghanistan, Fab Shank, the 15th of April, 2014. Forward surgical team. So this this is a situation. It's election day. That if you if you note that that was election day, 2014, April 15th. There were you know literally hundreds of thousands of people in long lines standing around waiting to vote, which were excellent targets uh, for our enemies. And this is a situation where in a nearby voting area. We had uh, seven casualties all at once, gunshot wounds, so people standing in line, uh, and we're going to talk about just the first patient that came in. This is, uh, many of you have been to this location. This is Fab Shank, mortar capital of uh, Afghanistan, uh, except one time we did an appendectomy on the chief's uh, kid, and then the mortaring stopped for a couple years, but only a couple years. So this is uh, uh, the first victim of seven. Uh, actually, ultimately eight. It's a 26-year-old man, uh, Afghan. Uh, he had multiple high-velocity gunshot wounds to his abdomen and lower extremities. He came in with a de decreased level of consciousness, decreased radial pulse in the field, delivered by an Afghan ambulance. He had combat gauze and field dressings applied. He had two peripheral IVs and a blanket placed uh, to keep him warm. He arrived at the FST at 10:40. Those are his vital signs. He's tachycardic and hypotensive. He had labored breathing. He was clearly eviscerated. As you see, he had no pulse in the right foot, a weak pulse in the left foot. His left lower extremity was uh, severely deformed, and he was bleeding out of all of these things. Here's uh, basically in this uh, facility, the only available uh, x-ray equipment was a mobile x-ray machine. Uh, you've all seen them in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, his, uh, in uh, the ATLS area, he arrived initially. You see his vital signs, and the question is, where do you go with this guy? Are you going to do evaluations in ATLS? Are you going to do or take him to the operating room? Where are you going to go with him? Don Jenkins. Uh, well, he needs uh, whole blood, and uh, we're, we can uh, start an operation on him uh, rather immediately. It would be nice to have uh, 
uh, some other uh, parameter on on him, like uh, use that ISTAT machine and see what uh, you know, see who's got a, a, a significant acidosis and what his uh, hemoglobin uh, is, uh, and perhaps a uh, chest radiograph as well, because uh, we don't know the trajectory of that abdominal uh, gunshot necessarily, uh, based upon what you've told us and what we're seeing here. Uh, there's no reason not to go to the operating room uh, with this uh, with this casualty. Uh, do we have an orthopedist uh, available to us? Three, ge three general surgeons and one orthopedic surgeon. Seven, seven more casualties coming throughout the day. Yeah, but we don't know that right now. Right? We know they're coming. We don't know when or where or how. Okay. And what's wrong with them? Yep. So he needs uh, he needs transfusion. He needs to be uh, intubated with ongoing resuscitation while we uh, operate. Johnny O, anything to add? Uh, yeah, I agree with uh, operation and immediate resuscitation, but uh, because you have a mass casualty situation, you're going to have to prioritize what you're going to do in the operating room. So uh, for him, I would uh, put tourniquets on the extremities and open the abdomen first because I think that may be potentially where the most life-threatening injury is. Uh, if you go into the abdomen and uh, you just have some small bowel injuries, you can repair those uh, and then continue to resuscitate and then consider bringing them back. Um, you know, depending on what the mass casualty situation is. So right now, it's it's the only patient. You don't know when the others are coming. You have no information. Would you obligate your four surgeons to two teams uh, operating on this patient at the same time? No, I, I would leave uh, one team of surgeons ready to receive the uh, additional casualties, and then I take uh, one team to deal with. I think this this is something that one big surgeon and one general surgeon uh, could do uh, if we're just doing damage control. Stacy. Uh, I agree with all that. The only thing I would add is that uh, I would do a fast exam of the abdomen because I think it might, I agree this guy does need to go to the OR, but if he was bleeding in his abdomen, I would resuscitate him a little bit less aggressively. I would take him to the OR, make sure I was ready to make an incision on the abdomen, possibly even get a Rebola if I had a positive fast. If the fast was negative, uh, I might uh, just get the tourniquets on and more aggressively resuscitate them to normal blood pressure before taking the OR. Craig. I think uh, all four surgeons can be operating until uh, uh, another patient comes in, and those surgeons can be designated to leave when it's time. Uh, I think that uh, we need to know more about the abdominal injury, if there's pelvis uh, involved and that sort of thing. But I don't think the patient can get a laparotomy in the, with the vitals that we're looking at now until there's some resuscitation. So in the meantime, I think uh, you can get surgical control in the groins, and the orthopedist can stabilize those um, try to reduce those fractures and maybe get pulses back. Okay, so that scene you saw there, uh, that's the scene in uh, ATLS, on arrival of the patient. You see the x-ray equipment. That's the only x-ray equipment that's available to you. Uh, there is a Charlie Med that can get you the whole blood and help with laboratory studies. And guess who the, patient, who the person is walking back and forth, not with the patient who's scowling? That's the FST commander, who is an OR nurse. Okay, so the patient... Can, can I ask one more question yeah, that, yeah, that was brought up before? I think it's important. We're all thinking it without saying it. We should say it. What, where we, what is our transport capability and timing? So this is, uh, Shank, your, uh, your transport capabilities. You can have a helicopter take the patient to Bagram. As many, you know, at this point in time, Bagram was also receiving patients, and it was unknown uh, how many of these patients they could take. 
and the thought was that maybe they can take one or two at most, and they weren't going to take any more. And if I could uh, add to that, depending on where, where we were at the time, and, and everybody has varying experiences, depending on whether this is a coalition injury or a civilian or um, a combatant, their arrival at the Roll 3 may be diverted to somewhere else. Do we know that? Yeah, so uh, good, excellent point. The only other option uh, for if they're not going to Bagram, they're going to the 1,000-patient civilian hospital in Kabul, and uh, their capabilities were not well known to us. So uh, the patient in ATLS was intubated uneventfully, chest X-ray does not demonstrate any injuries. Uh, he had bilateral tourniquets and also pelvis X-ray was normal. So we're looking at the gunshot wound to the abdomen and multiple gunshot wounds to the extremities. <coughs> bilateral tourniquets were placed as well as combat gauze. The bowel contents were covered with a sterile dressing. This patient was quickly uh, lined up uh, with an A-line, left subclavian, as well as a triple lumen, started to get blood transfusion. The initial labs, uh, so the patient arrived at 1040, pH of less than 6.5, lactate of greater than 20, and bicarb was not measurable. So uh, you can see the initial ABG and then uh, his initial INR on arrival was 1.9. So Don, you wanted labs. Here they are. So uh, uh, we can start with Dr. Sheps. What's your next step? Well, this is very challenging. So a co- coalition, uh, the, only, the one thing that uh, we add here um, is whether we should continue with this patient at all. Um, and so uh, presuming that uh, we have nothing else to do and we still have resources, uh, we would probably all continue that, but I think that's worth mentioning. No one else is here yet. You don't know when they're coming. Okay. So we keep uh, resuscitating the patient. Uh, uh, I don't know how much blood and resources we have uh, left. Um, but uh, We uh, have 100 units of red cells. We have about 100 units of uh, FFP and a giant fob full of nice, healthy, young... Goshank and... Uh, and do we know anything more about new patients coming in? Because we're going to use half of that blood. The rumors are flying. They're going to be here any minute. The rumors are flying. Right, right. It's also a gunshot wound to the left arm into the chest. They anyway, lie about they always lie about that on the pre. Uh, okay. Um, so, uh, with our x ray capability, it'd be interesting to, uh, while we're waiting to resuscitate this patient, which we have not successfully done. Uh, I think operating on this patient is. Uh, dangerous, but that seems to be the only um, source of ongoing blood loss. I think the patient needs an operation, and we're going to know whether that blood's going to be used on this patient or we're going to stop. And we didn't talk about the chest yet. Somebody ultrasounded or listened to the chest. Chest x-ray normal, yep, and pelvis x-ray normal. Stacy, what are you going to do? I just could play around and take him to the OR. And do what? Really figure out what's going on. You know, if there's something you can fix, fix it. But sometimes you get to the OR and you can't fix it. And if you have labs that are that bad and something that you can't fix, you may be expecting at that point. But for right now, I try to get there fast. Anybody disagree? No. Okay. Okay, so... Uh, so Dr. Jenkins, uh, Colonel Stockford said she was going to take the patient to the OR. Are you going to address you? So you have enough to do two teams. So where are you going to go? Because you can have a team on the extremities. So you have three general surgeons and one orthopedic surgeon. Where are you going to go, the abdomen or to the extremities? Yeah, we're, we're going to put uh, a team on the right extremity and the other team on the abdomen. Uh, for now, I'd like to know, since the tourniquets went up and he's gotten some transfusion, has that uh, impacted his uh, heart rate blood pressure in a positive way or not. 
the reason to go quickly into the abdomen is I have about zero threshold to declare this uh, patient uh, in extremis and futile care given his presentation uh, and especially his pH. If he's got uh, dual site exsanguination, uh, then it's a warm autopsy. Uh, so uh, this is uh, this could be a very short diagnostic uh, uh, evaluation. Blood pressure comes up and pulse drops with uh, transfusions that are initiated. And with the tourniquets in place, there's no obvious active bleeding at this point. Johnny O? Uh, so I, I agree that the initial labs look pretty grave, but I, I think the more important thing is actually the patient's response to resuscitation. So uh, with his obvious penetrating injury in this evisceration, I would proceed to the operating room, uh, resuscitate in the operating room, uh, get serial uh, lactates and ABGs. If he is responding to resuscitation, I think uh, you operate on the injuries in front of you, like Dr. Shriver said, and not operating the injuries that uh, aren't there yet, uh, because it sounds like the additional casualty is just a rumor. Uh, so then you could do this with four surgeons, uh, two on the extremity, two on the abdomen, and then I agree, uh, I'd go in the abdomen first. Okay, so... Uh... So this is, this is kind of what you have, Stacey. You have these different gunshot wounds. You have ongoing resuscitation um, with a pH of 6.8, so it's come up from less than 6.5, uh, and you have a low bicarb and a lactate greater than 20. So you've decided that you're operating on this patient. What you find is in the abdomen, all they have is small bowel injuries times two and a mesenteric hematoma associated with the small bowel injuries. In the extremities, you already saw the x-rays of the fractures, um, uh, the left distal femur fracture and the right fibula fracture. They're bleeding from their gunshot wound to the extremities. There's no pulse in the right lower extremity and a weak pulse in the left lower extremity. So you're in the operating room. Um, you have your two teams. It's responding to resuscitation. What's your plan in the OR? Colonel Shackelford. Uh, I mean, I would say it's a declared damage control situation. I would uh, resect the bowel and uh, try to see if I could shunt the extremity injuries. I wasn't exactly sure where all those bullet holes were on the extremities, um, but uh, try to just directly explore where the wound was. And, I mean, it looks like there's two... Yeah, that's a picture from the notes in the record from 2014. So it looks like the there's holes on the left leg lateral side and right leg lateral side as well. And is there two wounds on the left leg? Yes, at least. Yeah. So, so Frank Netter wasn't available. Yeah, Netter, Netter was not available for this. That's right. Stacy, a, a question for you. Uh, you don't know at this point if you're going to be able to get the patient to Bodrum or are they going to go to that 1,000 patient host national hospital. Does that affect your management in the operating room with respect to damage control? I mean, I would lean more towards definitive repair. However, this patient just physiologically is, is not really a candidate for definitive repair right now. So, um, you know, to, in order to be a candidate for definitive care, you'd have to do damage control and then resuscitate him. Dr. Sheps? Uh, I would, while operating, I would struggle that this is futile, uh, not necessarily today, but next week. Um, I would still operate. Uh, I think um, I agree with Stacy to, to address uh, there's, you know, there's no sources uh, uh, for blood loss other than the legs significantly, and so. I don't know how long that patient was down, but that's a long time, uh, most likely. So this, this is probably not recoverable. I also have no threshold for taking off that leg. So you have low threshold or no threshold? 
take his leg off. Yeah, that's the one thing we don't know is we don't know how long he was in the pre-hospital environment. So what the Ford surgical team did, they called for a whole blood drive uh, very expeditiously. They did an X-fix on the left femur. Uh, the left popliteal artery was explored locally and was known to be intact. Through that exploration, they did an agram, uh, which demonstrated one vessel run runoff. The right popliteal artery was shunted, and it was, uh, had doppelable DPs and PT pulses. Uh, the right popliteal vein was ligated, and fasciotomies were performed. Small bowel resection times two. The patient's resuscitation received 15 of blood, 15 of FFP, 21 units of whole blood, two units of cryo, 300 in hexten, TXA, calcium. Because it was so acidotic, received 10 amps of bicarb. This was all done within a couple hours. Now you can see uh, about almost three hours from when he arrived. Um, you can see a more blown up picture of his kind of post-op course and his intraoperative notes. Again, it doesn't look like netter, but it's pretty good information. As well as his post-op labs that demonstrate a base excess of seven because he received the 10 amps of bicarb and a lactate of almost 14. So let me take this opportunity now to uh, pimp uh, Dr. Chung, who is our uh, medical intensivist. Uh, <laughs> use of bicarbonate for the resuscitation of acidotic patients in hemorrhagic shock. Yes. To go use the microphone. I want everybody to be able to hear it. So typically in a low flow state, uh, bicarb is contraindicated. Uh, however, if your pH is lower than 7271, uh, you're at risk of death. And so in that scenario, you just got to do what you got to do and get bicarb. Thoughts about this degree of correction, pH 7.5? Obviously, it was a little overaggressive, but that's okay. I mean, you have to do what you have to it's do. It's a respiratory alkalosis. It's not metabolic alkalosis. Yeah. Excellent yeah, point. A little bit Excellent of overventilation, point. too. Very good. They're okay. overventilating and not overbiting. Well, he's both because he's both. he has got a base excess of 7. So okay. he's... Yeah. Um, uh, he's, he's both. Okay, so uh, Dr. Jenkins, so this is your patient now. Uh, are you going to manage him at the FST? You have not received the other patients yet, but there's still word they're coming. Or are you going to transfer him? Bagram is accepting your patients. Uh, if Bagram will take him, then he can, he can go. I would uh, draw your attention back to the radiograph you showed us of that knee. A host nation patient, uh, the likelihood that they're gonna, that's going to be a functional, useful extremity for him is, uh, is very low, hence my low threshold no threshold uh, to perform amputation on that leg. Uh, what you're looking at there now, if you look at that right leg, now that you had to do those fasciotomies and, and everything else, right, that, that's bleeding, uh, and uh, it, it just makes your management more difficult. But that guy needs to move along as soon as we can. Dr. O? So uh, I'd, I'd like to know what his muscles look like on the fasciotomy because uh, I, I'm starting to agree with Dr. Jenkins. I think... Um, in these cases, especially with that degree of uh, acidemia, you think about doing um, amputations up front. Wouldn't it be nice if we could all just call Dr. Jenkins when we were in the middle of a case downrange? <laughs> Everything. I tried, I tried one time. Uh, the answer, uh, yeah. the answer so, is that all the muscle is viable. Okay. So in that case, uh, with, with that information in front of me, I would, ha I would have also proceeded with uh, attempting a vascular repair, but uh, I would be worried about um, you know, reperfusion syndrome in this case. Stacy. What was the question again? <laughs> I'll answer first. So I think, I think the, 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 to me, the, the, the big question right now is the one that Dr. Jenkins has raised. And so are you going to go down this route of uh, putting a shunt in and then doing uh, fasciotomies, or are you going to amputate this leg? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, that was a really good point about going to an early amputation. Um, you revascularize and then do a fasciotomy in a hypotensive, coagulopathic, acidotic patient, and you just created more open wounds to bleed from, and it's probably not a salvageable limb anyway, so I agree with that. Would you then, so let me ask you the next question. Are you, gonna, are you going to transfer this patient to Bob? Yes. Craig? Amputation, no amputation, transfer to Bagram. Uh, no amputation, uh, shunt, fasciotomies, transfer to Bagram, provided I don't have more patients and I'm not losing blood along the way. I just care about the blood that I have left for the next guy. Okay, so this is the patient. He has his uh, op note written on his chest, at least with his fluids, and he does indeed get transferred to Bagram. He arrived at the combat support hospital at 1632, so about a little less than eight hours after his injury. His temperature is 101.2, blood pressure 106 over 56, heart rate of 187, SATs are 100% on the vent. GCS of 3T is intubated and sedated. On arrival, he immediately receives three units of fresh whole blood, one unit of FFP and one unit of PRBCs. He was given fentanyl and ketamine for pain control. On his exam, he has the open abdomen, which you saw. His left thigh is swollen. Um, he has the X-fix in place. He's got no palpable or dopplerable pulses in his left lower extremity. The right thigh fasciotomy has some uh, sanguineous drainage and no palpable pulses, but they are dopplerable. His ABG is 7.4, PCO2 of 52, PO2 of 140, base excess of 11, bicarb of 35, his lactate is 14, and CK 2100. So, uh, patients, at, patients at Bath. So, Don, let's put you in bath now. You weren't at the FST cutting his leg off. You're, now you're receiving this patient at bath, and here's what you got. What are you going to do? What, are you going to get more information? Are you going to go to the operating room, take him to the ICU for more resuscitation? What's your move? Well, I'm pretty curious about this uh, profound tachycardia that he's got, and uh, I'm concerned that maybe he's got an injury that we've uh, missed somewhere. Uh, certainly he has uh, no shortage of bicarb now. Uh, but, uh, we have to, we have to, we have to worry about. Uh, I think that uh, he belongs in the operating room. I would be looking at viability of uh, of muscle uh, in him again. Pretty low threshold to uh, uh, complete the work of the uh, uh, shooter, and uh, and and take one of those uh, take one of those extremities. Uh, you're going to have to interrogate uh, the other with on table uh, angio, uh, and. Uh, uh, that CK seems to be a, a little misleading uh, to me given uh, the amount of time this guy has had uh, poor perfusion. And maybe that's just it, is that uh, the, the CK isn't getting back. Uh, and uh, so I think a reperfusion injury is a real uh, serious consideration uh, in, this, uh, in this patient to include the potential for if you reestablish arterial uh, uh, flow, uh, a sudden death uh, kind, of a, kind of a thing. So you have to be prepared at the, across the ether screen uh, to uh, treat a sudden hyperkalemia uh, type, of, uh, type of event in him if you went the route of uh, reestablishing arterial inflow. John, you know, get more information or go to the operating room? Uh, so we need more information. So the left thigh swollen, there's no pulse, and the original x-ray showed a mid-femur uh, fracture, and they only interrogated from the popliteal artery down on the left leg. So this looks like a potentially missed superficial femoral artery injury. So several hours, if not a day, maybe has passed with this potentially missed injury. If he's got... 
uh, a missed superficial femoral artery injury, uh, then I would amputate that left leg. There's, so there's, there's you no... said you want more information. What more information are you going to get? Uh, angiogram. You're going to do an, an arteriogram? Arteriogram, yes. Not CT angio? Uh, oh, well, so it depends on what's available. But uh, you're, you're in Bagram. You can they do have... anything in Bagram. Right. I, I would do an a arteriogram at the left femoral artery. Are you talking about on table? Uh, how are you going to do this arteriogram? Are you going to take the operating room to do an arteriogram? What are you going to do? I would do it on table. Okay, Stacy. I mean, I would, I would just get CAT scan, scan the bellies, run off to the leg. Um, but then my plan would be to, I mean, I agree with John. Uh, I think it doesn't really matter whether you do a CTA or a on-table angio, but that's what I would do. And... Um, Reexplore the belly, reconnect the bowel, and at the same time, uh, we would be exploring the uh, vascular injuries to the lower extremities. Coach Lockerford, you would reconnect the bowel with the lactate of 14? Yes, I would reconnect the bowel with the lactate of 14. Okay. Fred? Uh, it still troubles me, the heart rate of 187. I, I feel like something else is going on. But uh, that, by the wayside, there's a missed injury in the left thigh that clearly wouldn't have happened if we just did what I wanted to do, which was cut down on the left groin instead of leave the tourniquets on when we transferred them. But uh, this being a new patient, I don't know that you can access the groin for your arteriogram. I don't know how swollen it is, but you can certainly access the... The iliacs from inside the abdomen. So what are you going to do? Uh, presuming I can't access the groin uh, to squirt it in the operating room, I would do that uh, in the operating room from the abdomen. So we have one of you getting a CT scan, one, uh, two going and three going to the OR with, and getting arteriogram in the OR. Is that right? Okay. So uh, what they did at, uh, at Bagram is they got a CT scan of the head, chest, abdomen, pelvis, as well as a CTA of the bilateral lower extremities. Um, the head and chest were fine. The abdomen, post-surgical changes in packing as expected. So, uh, Dr. O, you brought this up. Left lower extremity, the distal SFA had some active extravasation, but then there was three-vessel anatomy visualized at the trifurcation, so reconstituted, and there was bleeding from the perineal and posterior tibial arteries uh, adjacent to the fracture fragments with reconstitution at the ankle. On the right lower extremity, the SFA was normal. The shunt uh, in the popliteal was seen with minimal flow, but there was three-vessel runoff. Um, and the anterior tibial artery disappears while above the ankle, and posterior artery is patent. So now you have left leg with bleeding, right leg with thrombosis, open abdomen. Uh, you got your truth machine. You didn't go right to the OR. So, uh, Colonel Shackelford, since you were the one who wanted the CT scan, now what's your priority? Um, well, if I'm at Bagram, I don't need to have priority. I can do all three at once. Um, but your question is which one is the highest, most life-threatening right now is the uh, missed SFA injury that's actually bleeding. So what are you going to do? I uh, probably would explore the abdomen and the extremities at the same time. Um, and uh, do a, a vascular repair on the extremities. And also remember, uh, you're in the same country on election day, and you are also at risk for a multi-mass casualty scenario. Does that change anything for you? 
Mm, I mean, again, I wouldn't uh, change my decision based on casualties that haven't arrived yet. Uh, however, if, you know, if I was in the middle of a multi-casualty event and other casualties were arriving, I might alter my decision in that regard. Oh, by the way, the seven other people did get to, to are, are now, you know now that the seven other people are at Shank. Okay, are any of them seriously injured? Yes. There's uh, one in the operating room. As all this is going on, there's another patient in the operating room with a gunshot wound in the abdomen, and they're taking out the spleen, half the pancreas, and the kidney. Um, well, I think, I think that um, I, we could do a shunt in this patient then. I wouldn't repair it. Uh, we could thromectomize the one shunt that's clotted and do a shunt on the other side uh, without committing uh, too much resources and time to that and probably finish that before they uh, get the medevac from Shane. Dr. Sheffs? Uh, if I read that right, I would just tie off the SFA because both legs are reconstituted below and uh, make sure the fasciotomies are appropriate and adequate and then be done with this guy for now. Johnny O. So I, I would uh, explore the admin at the same time, do the extremities, fasciotomy first on the left before contemplating uh, repairing the left SFA. Don, you can only cut off his leg once. <laughs> oh, he's got another leg. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm very curious about what's going on in the abdomen. You know, the guy's uh, febrile and profoundly tachycardic. Uh, I'm concerned that, uh, that perhaps our uh, floating segment of intestine uh, has uh, uh, is compromised in in some way. Uh, I'm still, you know, concerned that there could be a uh, missed injury, even though our CT uh, doesn't uh, doesn't doesn't show that because uh, you got to put that stuff together somehow. Uh, I think that uh, given the circumstances that you're describing, multiple other casualties uh, uh, do into us. This guy's going to get uh, um, shunts, and we are going to uh, really make sure all uh, of the fasciotomies that needed to be done were done and uh, contemplate whether or not he needs any left thigh fasciotomies uh, as well. Okay, so he, uh, after the CT scan, was taken to the operating room, uh, and about one hour after arrival, his OR time was three hours. He had bilateral lower extremity angiographies, bilateral lower extremity explorations, ligation of the bleeding vessels of the left leg, revision of the shunt on the right popliteal artery, left lower extremity fasciotomy, the right fasciotomy was irrigated, he had a revision of the X-fix, received seven units of blood, seven of FFP, ten of cryo-TXA, as well as calcium. In the operating room, uh, so his abdomen was not addressed. In the operating room, his lactate 16, his INR is 2.1, his CK 2600, potassium of 5.5, and, and creatinine 2.1. Maybe they should have put in a peritoneal dialysis catheter. <laughs> yeah, and then what do you, what, uh, Dr. Jenkins, what do you think? So he had a arteriogram at the roll 2, he had a CTA at the roll 3, and then he had an angiography in the operating room. Can you comment on that? Uh, yep, so that's that's why I would not have gone to a CT. Uh, I want to reserve that. Uh, you've already had a photon scan in the abdomen, uh, so I don't know what you gain by doing uh, you know do, doing a uh, a CT of the of the abdomen or in the chest when you had a normal chest X-ray in this patient. I want to reserve uh, that renal function uh, and do a very you know focused and, and definitive uh, study by doing the on-table uh, arterial 
choreogram, and realizing that if you do a repair, uh, that uh, you're going to have to repeat it potentially uh, uh, anyway. And so, uh, I don't really, I, I don't really see that the that the, the contrast from the CT is is helpful uh, in this patient. Again, given that low flow state, I think that CK you're going to put another zero on it at some point at the end, and uh, maybe another digit in front of the uh, two uh, for the for the creatinine. By the time this is all said and done, so, this, uh, this would go to my point as to why I would have taken that right leg off from the beginning. So let's take it back to Dr. Chung. Uh, all, you guys are all operating. This guy gets taken to the ICU. Dr. Chung is the ICU doctor. What are your priorities uh, in the management of this patient in the ICU while all the surgeons are tied up in the operating room and having a great time? Delivering you very sick, critical patients. I'm having a great time, too, in the ICU. <laughs> so uh, we're at Bagram, did you say? Yes. Yeah. So Bagram ICU. We have a next stage, which is nice. So I'm uh, cranking that up. Uh, getting that ready to go because this guy is going to be very metabolically deranged as uh, the panel has stated. And so uh, getting him as metabolically uh, you know, controlled as possible is going to be uh, my priority when he comes back into the ICU while continuing uh, resuscitation. Dr. O. So uh, can you go back to the previous labs? Um, so I, I agree. I think um, what we're, his lactate is not clearing, so that's a poor prognostic sign, and then you've got to ask why. So if they didn't explore the abdomen, uh, like Dr. Jenkins said, uh, I'm still wondering if there is either missed injury or dead bowel. Uh, but um, with all his uh, arterial injuries in his extremities and uh, a shunt that was uh, potentially clotted or partially thrombosed, then I think we're also looking at uh, dead muscle as well, the dead compartments um, that may have been missed. Colonel Shackelford? I mean, Don's point about amputation is well taken, and I mean, I was agreeing with him initially. And, and I think it depends on your trajectory here, so it's a little bit hard to tell if you're not real time. But if you're getting more and more acidotic after a bad ischemia perfusion injury, I mean, that patient is going to die unless he gets an amputation. So, Dr. Sheps, this is your patient now. He's gotten the, uh, he's the two operations, two arteriograms, one CT, greater than 70 units of blood. Um, he's in the ICU at Bagram. He's got now active bleeding from his abdomen, pin sites and all dressings, tachycardic and hypotensive, and his urine output declines. So uh, this is called 4-plus bleeping sick, where I come from. And uh, I think Colonel Shriver uh, brought up the triad. He's had it for about 12 hours now. Um, the, I think one of the first calls you have to make is where, where this guy's going to go next, if he's going to go, and who cares for him uh, personally. And, and uh, think about calling it off. Um, because you have some other patients coming in. That's sounding like a cop-out, a cop and I want to just say that, uh, like I thought about it early in, in the Roll 2, and I'm not a, a Roll 3 guy, so I'm a little bit out of my league. But um, Let me just uh, say at this point in time that DCCS at Bagram says, no MOS, we're not taking any more foreign nationals. So you, you, you don't know, there's no U.S. casualties at this point, no coalition casualties. These are civilians, they're not coming to Bagram. Right. 
So, so are, you going to make, are you going to make this guy expectant in comfort care, or are you going to pursue this? So this is the this say again with this is the only patient we have. This is the only patient you have right now. And and the, and the DC says says no more foreign nationals at Bob, and we don't know what's going to happen with the U.S. casualties. We could have a mass casualty with U.S. people. Our hospital's full, and we're not taking any more any more of these close. Okay, so we're keeping it keeping them at Bagram basically indefinitely at this point. It sounds like is what you're describing. Yes. Um, yeah, I think I stopped. You're going to cut them off. Uh, cut them off, meaning I would uh, I would support what we have here, but I think uh, you know unless we have dialysis and uh, you know indefinite uh, resources for the other seven patients that are coming in, I think this is a this is a uh, future lost cause, maybe not today, but um, so you know, no we're more, spend a lot so, of resources. So let's be specific. No more blood transfusions, just pain medicine. Is that what you're saying? Yes, Stacy. Uh, and the only way uh, this guy's going to survive is with dialysis or renal replacement therapy. So if I have renal replacement therapy available, which at this time we do, in Boston, but I don't know if at that time we do. We did. It would depend. If I have that, I would uh, start CRT and continue resuscitating and do the amputation. Johnny O. Uh, so uh, I, I would agree with that. So if it's renal failure and uh, Bagram, if you have an ICU that's not full, this is your only patient. I think I think they can manage this uh, as far as resources. So uh, if this is just if this is just AKI, uh, which from all the information, that's all I can tell right now. If this is just AKI, I think you can get them through. Don, you want to go smoke that cigar on the roof? I know you do. Yeah, I, I was already out there after the amputation. <laughs> and by the way, his renal function would be pretty good right now. Um, but uh, Dr. Jenkins, let's just take you to the next question. So, so he's in the ICU, and uh, and so because we knew what you were going to do, what you wanted to do. So, but now now you have this patient. He's actively bleeding from his abdomen. Uh, the pin sites and all dressings, he's at 600 cc's from his abdomen. His urine output declines. You can see his vital signs, and he continues to get resuscitation, for which he transiently responds. Uh, so how are you going to manage him there now? In, in the ICU or overall? Overall. Yeah, well, uh, there's still something going on. Uh, do we have thromboelastography that we could do uh, a little check and see what his... Uh, uh, overall coagulation profile is might help direct no, our you don't, you therapy. Don't have a tag. No. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so uh, uh, go back to what I said before: is you know what's going on in the extremities, you don't know what's going on in the abdomen. Uh, I think you need to be back in the abdomen, especially with that uh, bleeding. He is not hypothermic, uh, and uh, you have normalized his uh, his pH. Um, uh, want to recheck that CK uh, if we uh, if we could and uh, uh, look at his belly. And that is what they did. They re-explored his abdomen. He had an ischemic area of the mid jejunum. I just point out that if you did not do the bowel resection, that puts you at higher risk for intestinal ischemia. Say that again. The reason I uh, said earlier that I would do the bowel resection. I 
Okay, so uh, uh, he did have a ischemic mid-jejunum, which was resected. Uh, ignore that next comment. Um, he, had, he had a cavity in the left psoas muscle that was packed, and um, uh, abdominal vac was placed, and he continued blood product resuscitation. So now he's uh, returned to the ICU at 5 in the morning uh, with continued hypotension and tachycardia. We're not going to ask Dr. Sheps what he would do because we already know the answer. So both, uh, <laughs> both of his feet are cool with a greater than four-second capillary refill um, and a lot of drainage from the vac. His lactate's 11, his platelet were 62. I'm sorry that didn't show up. INR is 2.2, creatinine 2.9, FOS of 12. Tom? CK? Um, his CK remains stable at 2200. Okay. Actually, I take that back. It's 2600. Uh, it's getting futiler and futiler. Um, I'm going to have to say, uh, not going to withdraw care, but we're going to hold care at the current level, uh, continue with some blood resuscitation. Uh, as best as I can make out, this is now a non-surgical uh, bleeding uh, issue that he's, uh, that he's got. Uh, doesn't sound like he's going to tolerate any real replacement therapy attempts. Um, so without, without withdrawing care actively, I think I would hold care at the current level. John? So, uh, so I agree. I think something is physiologically unhinged here. He is not responding to resuscitation. His lactate is not clearing. Uh, he's staying coagulopathic despite uh, further resuscitation and identification of dead bowel. So I think this is actually becoming futile care. So what I'd say the, the one other thing uh, that this could be, be a little unusual, but it could be, is that uh, he could he could have a uh, uh, invasive uh, infection in that psoas, uh, right? So a necrotizing uh, fasciitis uh, type of uh, setup after the bullet uh, uh, traversed uh, the, the small intestine, less likely than if it had gone through the colon, uh, but it was a high-velocity missile, and uh, I think that deserves some thought on, on our part as to whether or not uh, additional debridement uh, or exploration for that could be possible. So, Don, you, you looked at it and debrided it. It looked viable. You didn't see uh, evidence of infection. Would you change antibiotics based on those thoughts? He's shaking no. his head no. How would you manage him in terms of antibiotics in general? Um, with those, uh, I think that at this point his, his antibiotics are related to open fracture management and not to anything that we've done in the abdomen. So I would potentially give him, uh, well, and how many blood volumes has he has he been replaced? Right. So so uh, uh, no more than 24 hours of antibiotics for anything going on in his abdomen. John, uh, I'm sorry, John, uh, you're, you're yeah, heading towards so, cover care, but you didn't right. you didn't make so, the call. Which are you so cover care limited? So uh, the call I would make here is no, nothing more invasive to include no more blood transfusions at this point. Uh, at this point, I think I would continue the current management, which is probably the ventilator support, um, but I wouldn't give him any more blood transfusions. Well, we'll let, we'll let Kevin you know, 
I just think. <laughs> Stacy. I, I don't disagree with any of that. The only other thing I was going to mention is that this guy's had a hell of a lot of uh, thrombotic complications, plus uh, the, the uh, uh, coagulopathy and the thrombocytopenia, so I would consider the diagnosis of it and um, potentially treat for that, which would be include withdrawing the heparin and uh, using a direct thrombin inhibitor. Kevin, uh, so let's get a different standpoint. We've got surgeons on the panel. We got a, you're a medical intensivist. You've heard this story. You, you haven't been operating, but you're taking care of in the ICU. Is this a comfort care patient, limited interventions? Where, where do you feel? Not yet. Um, I, I think you give him at least a 24-hour tri- trial of life. Uh, this, it's possible that he has multi-organ failure and is in this shock state because of all these hits. And so if you can, uh, again, correct him metabolically, and support him over the next 12, 24 hours as a possibility this could turn around. So short of something that obviously, you know, may have been missed, but you guys have done a, a great job trying to figure that out, and it looks like everything that you needed to fix has been fixed. Now, um, there's this common thought that CRT is uh, not well tolerated in a hypotensive patient. I would say that's untrue. In fact, in a patient that's in shock, um, it has a, the potential to reverse shock, especially if you do CVVH. And so in this patient, I would initiate CVVH at a very high dose, at least 70 cc's per kg, and try to at least get some metabolic control and then see what happens. Dr. Sheps, since you had the conversation with your medical intensivist and you said try 24 hours. You can always call Dr. Chung and ask him how to do it. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the disclaimer that I have here is that I'm a, I'm a role two guy. I, I don't have critical care uh, expertise, experience, uh, and so hopefully I would have somebody to lean on here. But I, I would talk to whoever is the receiving family member or uh, such of this patient uh, to withdraw support, and if not, withdraw support based on fetal care for this patient long term. I, I would make the comment. This is uh, Ray Fang. There are certain uh, diagnoses that we see in the war zone that, for U.S. casualties, would be survivable: 50% burn, uh, severe spinal cord injury, TBI, and things like that. And those patients, when they're U.S. or coalition, we go full court press because we can evac them to higher levels of care and they get continued critical care and rehab. Unfortunately, for some of the host nation casualties we get, those resources are not available. So you can work extremely hard to save them in this acute phase, but sometimes their outcome is already decided. And, uh, and again, as a learning system, we've learned that there are some patients who we can save them, but ultimately we're just prolonging their death because they are still going to die down the line because they don't have those other resources. It's, it's an easier decision to make today than a week from now when he looks like he's got irrecoverable uh, renal failure and there is no dialysis available to him in his country. Uh, so if you're going to make the decision, today's the day to make the decision because uh, you can go out peacefully and quietly uh, or uh, you, you, can't, you can't truly predict, but uh, he's not... Uh, it's, it's been a day, and he's not, not much better. It's worse. Okay, great. Those were all awesome comments. So just for the rest, what happened with this patient, because of his increasing lactate, they took him back to the operating room for the extremities. They did find dead muscle. I think everybody on the panel mentioned that that was a possibility. And they also placed the dialysis catheter at that time and continued resuscitation. 
Uh, and then over the uh, post-op course, CVVH was started. Uh, I didn't see what the dose was in the chart, but they started CVVH. He developed intra-abdominal hypertension as well as worsening acidosis. A lot of the ICU complications that you expect when patients go into multi-system organ failure, ARDS, he had a vasopressor requirement, which uh, he did have a cardiac arrhythmia, which initially responded to cardioversion, but then he had a, um, non a, a refractory cardiac arrhythmia uh, to all resuscitative measures, and he died post-injury day two at 11.15 in the morning. So again, uh, Hindsight's 2020. So when we look at this case from roll two all the way through transfer, we'll start with the panel members. If they're, I have a feeling I know what Dr. Jenkins is going to say, so we'll keep him last. So we'll start, start with Dr. Sheffs. Um, if there's one thing you could, if there's anything, I mean, maybe there's nothing you would change, but if there was something that um, you think might have changed the outcome in this, sir, what, do you, uh, what are your thoughts? I don't think anything would change the outcome. I think what needs to be recognized is a patient comes in with that sort of metabolic derangement to the roll two, without any outward bleeding except for in the extremities, then he, he almost bled to death in the field. And you need to recognize that that is almost certainly not recoverable unless he has, uh, you know, first world medicine, um, ICU recovery, rehabilitation uh, in his future. And so the consideration for even the role, too, is to, is to not support him. I will say that there's almost no situation when I wouldn't try in the role two and, and leave that to all of these smart people that work in the role three. But I think that's a good point because if you look at his catalog of injury, there wasn't one injury that was something that would, we would consider absolutely lethal. So his downtime in the field, which is documentation that we didn't have from the record, probably is what is ultimately determining this patient's outcome. Colonel Shackford? Early amputation. What did you say? Early amputation. Okay. John? So I agree, the die was cast before he showed up. Uh, I, I think it was, I think they did the right thing trying to salvage it because we have seen uh, survivors, even with that pH and lactate. Um, I think, uh, you know, as things progress, you realize it's not clearing his lactate and other things going on, but it shows how important pre-hospital care is. If he had, you know, yeah. in respect, tourniquets and quicker transport time yeah. would probably be the single thing that would have made the difference. Don, what do you think in terms of what would you have done differently? What critical events? Yeah, I would have taken the right leg at the level two, at the roll two, and I would have taken his other leg uh, at the uh, uh, re-op uh, when he had the vascular injury in that left leg. Uh, would have been my course of action for all the reasons that Ray stated. Uh, you know, I've seen this too many times, uh, and uh, it, we try to do too much to save his, uh, save his limbs and not enough to save his life. Yeah. I want you know, go ahead and say. Um, I mean, I just want to highlight what John said. You know, the, the way you frame the questions is kind of like, what would you do as a surgeon? But, I mean, there, he's absolutely right. Literally, the only thing that would have really had an impact on this patient would have been early tourniquet applications in the field. And, and that's exactly what I was going to say. This, uh, this patient uh, that's taken care of by our pre-hospital care is, uh, is, is not a significant injury, really. Um, Relatively speaking, I think it's you know it's really particularly interesting. The patient came with combat gauze, which means if you've got combat gauze, you've got tourniquets. So uh, I think that's an interesting point. Is there anyone in the audience that would not have offered this patient resuscitation at the at the roll two? A couple hands went up. I think that's fair. 
I've had one or two patients with uh, those initial blood gases who have survived in San Antonio. Uh, this is a host national patient. Uh, he came in essentially moribund. And the question is, do we spend the resources? And we had a lot of uh, discussion about that. But do we risk an aircraft to move this patient to roll three, knowing that this, uh, that this patient, unfortunately, has a 99% uh, chance of death? And uh, so if I'm going to resuscitate this patient, uh, then what? And uh, I think the, the wise course of action would have been not to resuscitate him. So you would have encouraged him to go towards the light? As it were, yes, sir. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Cancer. Dr. Laporta? Maybe wonder, as the pulse came 187, what Dr. Jenkins, I think, was the one that brought up the abscess, but how widely debrided were, were these wounds? I mean, were they dead setups that I didn't see any mention of, you know, the basic care we would have given yeah, that wasn't in the notes, um, how, but it didn't sound like, from, he did have did very good documentation from the roll too, and that wasn't mentioned as the concern for infection or uh, myonecrosis. Congress? Uh, a major theme of our conference this past few days has been providing care in a limited resource environment. For example, prolonged field care. Uh, one thing we make, and we use the DODTR to get data on how to manage patients, perhaps we can use data from the DODTR to help tell us when we should not uh, be aggressive. Because you can imagine in uh, the very austere environment, the amount of resources we have, we could look at our patients who arrive who are yeah, very acidotic, tremendous uh, uh, pH is very low, who uh, we could identify how much resources will be used to help provide some guidance, just like our burn CPG provides us guidance for our host nationals with a certain percent body surface area, that may be helpful going forward. And Congress, that's an awesome point. I mean, I think not, neither one of these patients would have survived in a prolonged field care environment. There's, you know, they would have not have survived a six-hour, eight-hour, ten-hour transport. Uh, they wouldn't have survived an operation with one surgeon uh, with very limited blood resources. So these, both these patients, and if the second patient was a local national, but if it wasn't, uh, neither one of them would have survived in the PFC. I mean, depending the second patient, depending on the pre-hospital care, obviously. But if they had come in with those labs, um, yeah, good, very good point. Colonel Nelson. Hey, so just a more general point, and, and I think it's important. As I look around this room, I see people who have probably managed hundreds of casualties, even individually, in a combat environment, which gives you an awful lot of experience. But as I look back at the, at the last conflict we fought in Iraq when we went back in, one of the things that I really regret is that we didn't take care of local nationals that wounded Iraqis the way we did in, in Afghanistan and Iraq the first time around. And my own personal experience in Afghanistan is we had about 800 patients. 600 of those were Afghanis. So what I tell the line commanders when it comes to this is every one of these people that I take care of, my team gets better and I get better. And so the only, the only caveat I have to all this is try to manage them the way you would manage anybody so that your team gets the experience of the management. And if you are going to withdraw care at World 2 especially, Make a phone call to Roll 3 and have a conversation and say, okay, this is what I'm thinking, or do you agree? Sort of have an ad hoc 
you know, ethics <coughs> meeting with the, with, the ex, with as many experts as you can pull into it. So you don't make that decision by yourself. But that's a heavy burden for any one person to carry. And, I, again, I think I would always advocate to take care of as many combat wounded in whatever location I'm in because we missed an opportunity to train another generation of surgeons in, in Iraq the last time. I think that's a really, really excellent point, Colonel Nesson. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, panelists, you're not off the hook yet. You each have three seconds for your rapid-fire round. Wait, I'm okay. super nervous. Wait. Wait. Okay, this is it. Okay, well, don't no. worry. We'll, we'll start with you since you're nervous, right? Okay, so right. palpable pulses. This patient, palpable pulses. Do you need any more information to evaluate the vascular uh, exam? Uh, no. Um, it looks like the thigh's big. I mean, no, no. Stacy. Get ABI. Daniel. ABI. Don. Debris. Okay. ABI is 0.85. Still no. Okay. <laughs> uh, Stacy. <laughs> Uh, I mean, normally I use 0.9 as a threshold to get an angiogram of some sort, so I guess I'll get an angiogram. What sort of angio? CGA. John? I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm going to roll. Now, now you paint me in the corner of angiogram because I got the ABI, now it's abnormal, so I got to do something about it. Yeah, where are we? You're in yes. a, you're, you're at roll three. Roll three. Roll three so you got choices. Yeah. On table angio. Don. Uh, on table angio. Okay. Next patient, ABC. Or CBA, Dr. Jenkins? CBA. John? Uh, CBA. Stace? Assuming that's the only injury that he's got. Yep, this is the only injury. That definitely qualifies as massive hemorrhage. And what would you do for, so if everybody chooses CBA, uh, Dr. Sheps, what, what are you going to do for hemorrhage control on that? Um, sort of what's there, provided they didn't put that on blindly. That Those look like they were blindly put on, but... Um, direct pressure and intubate and go to the operating room and find the vessels. Uh, and anybody, would anybody put anything else on them? Stace? I mean, if, I, if you have a technical tracheal, a cross clamp would be like the ideal thing to compress the axillary artery there. Dr. Rowe? So, so this is tough because uh, his uh, axillary vessel may have retracted actually into potentially into his chest without possible that is. So uh, that's a tough one, but the chest tube will give you more information. No, there's no blood in the chest tube. Yeah, Dr. Jenkins? Uh, we're just going to go operate. Clamp the vessel. Hold, hold, hold pressure, clamp the vessel, just get him in the operating room. That's where he belongs. Okay, this patient, uh, he had a small bowel resection. These are your gunshot wounds. So you found your two gunshot wounds. This was it. Small bowel resection. You are at a roll two. Open or keep the ab This is it for injuries. Two, two, uh, two injuries to the small bowel. You're leaving the abdomen open or you're closing the abdomen? Stable patient. Craig, I have uh, closed the abdomen two out of 200 times, so open. Stacy, open. Johnny, yeah, I'd, I'd leave it open because it's a high velocity. It's in a combat setting. You got, you got to take a second look. Don, leave it open and transfer. Anybody want to uh, fix this and close the abdomen? Show of hands. Okay, now you're at a roll three. Same same situation. Patient stable. Roll three. Get a second look. John. Second look. The roll three, I would reset and close the abdomen. Uh, having not been in roll three, I think uh, repair and uh, 
second look, maybe third look, depending on when the transfer is. Okay, now you're at a level one trauma center in the States. This is your injury. Dr. Sheps? Uh, I would have repaired it and closed the abdomen the first time. Stacy? I would do the same thing that I would have done about it. Repair it or, or resect it? John? So if it's a low-velocity civilian penetrating wound and I found all the injuries... You don't know, you don't know the weapon. Don't know the weapon. Yeah. That okay. is, you see, you just, it's like many of our patients. You take them, you open them up, there's a hole. I'm assuming it's not an AK-47-762, so uh, repairing clothes. <laughs> I wouldn't assume anything. But, Old assumption. Now, you're but what are you going to do with this hole in a level one trauma center? Uh, resect bowel, primary anastomosis, close the abdomen if he's stable. Don, concur. What if you're in a rural hospital in the United States? Same. Don. Uh, I am going to transfer that patient after uh, controlling the contamination. John? Uh, uh, otherwise stable, I, I would repair and primarily um, close the abdomen. Stacy. Rural hospital, United States. Um, I would resect and close the abdomen. Right. Uh, I would repair, close, and observe the patient in the hospital. Okay. Very good. So you guys, are, are there any additional questions from the audience? I think most of the audience asked their question, and they had some great comments. So I just wanted to thank the people yeah. at the JTS for helping me pull the data, uh, Colonel Schreiber and Matt Martin for pictures, and a big round of applause for our panel members. And I just wanted to uh, thank everybody for sticking this out. I know this was a long session. And also, in addition to thanking our panel members, I wanted to thank military members of all nations who risk their lives in service to their country and who occasionally become our patients. Thank you for all your past, present, and future sacrifices. We will continue to work diligently to improve all aspects of combat casualty care and to remember all the valuable lessons learned. Thank you guys for doing uh, that. wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the east.